So we're going to be looking at Philippians tonight and throughout this semester. Uh, y'all can go ahead and turn to that or if you have it on the back of your, of your handout. But as we get ready to, to read this passage, I want to kind of set it up a little bit. So the second Friday of January, which this year was January 12th, is known as National Quitters Day. Um, and it's known that because a, a company called uh, Strava did some research. Uh, they are a social media app for athletes, so I would not be on that social media platform. Um, but they did some research and they discovered that people usually give up their New Year's resolutions by the second week of the new year. So that second Friday of the new year, usually people have already given up on their new year's resolutions. So that means for years, unwittingly, I have been celebrating National Quitters Day. Uh, I've been doing it for a long time. How many people are celebrating National Quitters Day this year? Y'all don't have to raise your hands. We, we know who you are. I, I saw one hand go up. Don't look. Nobody look. I already, I mean, I did it Again, this year, you always have these great expectations for yourself. You're like, oh, man, I'm, I'm, I'm 2024 is my year, new year, new me. I'm really going to get on top of things. Maybe you set up some goals for yourself physically, like I'm going to work out more or I'm going to eat more fruit, like all the wonderful fruit that y'all named on the board in the back. And I'm a little bit worried about Clemson. I thought it was like a really good education here but i saw potato on there so i'm not exactly sure um so yeah you set all these goals for yourself physically maybe you set some goals for yourself um with studying like man i'm really going to stay on top of it i'm not going to wait until the last minute to do all my exams i'm going to do all my reading i'm going to do all the things i'm supposed to and even more so it feels like for me i set goals for myself spiritually that I'm going to pray for this many hours per day, that I'm going to read this many books of the Bible each night, you know, um, and I always kind of fall flat on my face, right? Like you always fail. You always end up disappointing yourself. You always find out that you're the same old you with your same old habits, your same old quirks, your same old insecurities, your same old uh, struggles. And, and it can be really disappointing and that's when cynicism kind of starts to set in. So cynicism is kind of the way that I want to think about the book of Philippians as we go through it this semester. And maybe y'all don't understand what I'm saying by cynicism. Maybe you've heard that word before. You don't exactly know what it is. But cynicism starts with a negative outlook on the world around you or negative outlook on the future. That you, that you look out in the world around you and you're like, things are not going to go well. I feel that in myself. I feel that in college students as I interact with some of you guys. Um, I, and it's understandable, right? It's in the air we breathe. Think about Stranger Things. Y'all, anybody Stranger Things fans? I like the first season. That was about it, right? But maybe that's, maybe that's bad to say. So Stranger Things, the whole premise of the show is that... The adults are either evil and have ruined the world, or they're ignorant of the bad things happening in the world, or they're apathetic. They don't care about the bad things happening in the world. And it's up to the kids to save the world from destruction. And you can understand why that show appeals to Gen Z so much, 
Because y'all turn on the news and you hear warnings about financial economic collapse. You'll hear warnings about climate change. You'll hear warnings about political unrest. You hear warnings. It always feels like we're on the brink of World War III, right? Like things are always going to blow up at some point. And so it's easy to look out and have a negative outlook on the world around you and a negative outlook on the future, right? And so cynicism starts with that. Cynicism ends with your defense mechanism response to everything is bad. And that is detaching yourself from everything, insulating yourself from everything so that you don't care about things that much. So that when things go poorly, you're like not disappointed because you were already disappointed to start with. You know? That you make sure that you don't really care too much about stuff. That you keep everything at arm's length and you don't have any high expectations for anything. I feel that in myself. I feel that in a lot of college students. Um, And you know, the area where we can tend to be most cynical is about ourselves. We have disappointed ourselves more than anybody else has in our lives, probably. We've celebrated National Quitters Day Over and over and over again to the point where it's like, I'm not going to fool myself anymore, right? I know what's up now. I'm not going to depend on me anymore. I know that I'm going to disappoint myself. And so as we think about Philippians 1 and we think about cynicism and we think about how cynicism most clearly is is seen in ourselves and our our own hope about ourselves to change and to grow, we see in Philippians 1 that that's exactly where the Apostle Paul starts in his letter to the Philippian church. Is he starts with the lives and the hearts of the Philippians. So Paul is, to set this book up, Paul is in a Roman jail writing this letter. And he's not in a Roman jail and he's like, okay, I've only got this many weeks until I'm released. He's in a Roman jail awaiting his execution. And even in the midst of that, he has an unbreakable joy anchored in Christ that rises above every circumstance, every disappointment, every struggle that he encounters in life. And so for that reason, I think that Philippians is a really good book for us to soak in, to see that the gospel destroys cynicism and to generate some hope in our own hearts based on Jesus and what he's done for us and what he's doing in us. So let me pray or or let me read and then I'll pray for us and we'll dive in and we'll look at two things. So Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. 
For you are all partakers with me in the gospel of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you teach us from your word, that your word is living and active. It's not just a dead, ancient document that we dig into, but is you speaking into our lives. I pray that you would dig ears in our hearts. Let us hear you, that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see the world the way that it really is. Be with us in this time together. Let Jesus be glorified. Let us be encouraged, convicted, pointed to him. We pray this all in his name. Amen. All right, so we're going to talk about two things. The source of hope and the prayer of hope. So the source of hope. We, we see in verses 3 through 8 that Paul starts the book of Philippians or the, the letter of the Philippians with great encouragement. He is so optimistic about the Philippian church. I mean, think of, look at the ways that he talks to them. I thank my God. In all my remembrance of you, every time I think about you, right? Always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. He's like bubbling over with his love and his gratitude and his thankfulness. And every time he thinks about the Philippians, he's just overflowing in prayer. And he's overflowing in prayer because they've partnered with him in the gospel. If you look in verse 8, he says, For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He has got strong, strong feelings for the Philippians. Do you have somebody in your life who is more optimistic about you than you are about yourself? Maybe it's your mom, your mommy who thinks that you're the most handsome little boy, right? Or maybe it's your dad who still thinks you're his little princess, right? Maybe it's grandparents or coaches or teachers. Maybe it was the person who brought you here to Clemson, dropped you off. You know, that they, they just have, they're constantly gassing you up, right? That's what the young kids say. I, I like to throw in some lingo like that to let y'all know I'm hip, right? So... They're, they're constantly talking about how great you are. You hung the moon. You're just everything, right? They're so excited. And they, they drop you off at Clemson. They're like, good luck. You're going to do great in college. And then the car door closes and their car pulls out of the parking lot. And you're left there with this sinking feeling that you're just not going to live up to all the hype. You're like, I'm just not going to be as good as this person thinks I'm going to be, Right? You know that you're going to disappoint them. You know you're going to let them down. Because you look in the mirror or you look in your own heart and you don't see all the glowing things about you that they apparently see. You know, that you struggle to see yourself the same way that they see you. That's what Paul's doing here with the Philippians. He thinks they're great. Now, does Paul think the Philippians are great because the church at Philippi is so great? 
If you read about the formation of the church at Philippi, which you can actually do, it's really interesting that we've got the founding of the church at Philippi in the Bible. So you can read Acts 16 to see how the church at Philippi was started. And it was started in a very unlikely way, right? So, so Paul and Silas show up to Philippi and there's no synagogue there. There are no Jewish believers there. There's no core group that they can kind of build on, you know? They don't have that. So they encounter this Gentile woman who becomes a convert, very unlikely person. And then they end up almost immediately in jail. Paul and Silas are in jail. If at the end of my first semester at Clemson, I end up in jail, people will not see that as a successful semester, right? I think people would be disappointed. And, and so you look at the outside and you're like, man, the fact that there's a church at Philippi is a little bit mind-blowing. And so it's not so much the church at Philippi. It's what we see in verse 6. And I think verse 6 is kind of a core verse in the book of, the, of Philippians. I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God began the work in Philippi. The whole reason that Paul and his crew go to Philippi is because Paul has a vision of a man begging them to come and preach the gospel to them. And then after they end up in jail... They are, they, they're singing psalms in the middle of the night and there's an earthquake and all the doors come off the hinges and they go to, they, they're not going to escape, but the Philippian jailer freaks out and, and he's about to kill himself and they stop him and he becomes a Christian himself, him and all his family. And so it's not so much the circumstances of Philippi or the people in Philippi, it's that God is the one who has decided that he is at work in Philippi to build his church. And, and that's the same thing with us, right? How, how many of you here tonight think that God views you in this way? That he's excited about you? That he looks at the things going on in your life and in your heart and he's really pumped up and he's really happy and he's overflowing with joy and gratitude for who you are and how he's made you and what he's doing in you. And then how many of you kind of view Think God that views you the way that you view yourself. That you kind of, he comes to you and he's got a long list of like New Year's resolutions. It's like, hey, these are the things that you need to do better. These are the places where you're failing. These are the places where I think you could try harder, do, do more, be more holy. I mean, maybe that's the reason you're here tonight. Because you're like, I'm going to do better this year. I'm actually going to go to RUF, large group, and I'm going to be involved in all this stuff, and I'll do better. I'm going to make God happy, you know, be enough for him. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a pursuer, is a pursuing God. You have God the Father who sends his son into a rebellious creation because of his love for us. That even though he could have wiped us out, he doesn't. He sends his son. And you have Jesus, God the son, who puts on human flesh, who lives a perfect life for us on our behalf, 
who dies a sinner's death, even though he's completely sinless because he's dying for us, and then rises again to reign. And you have God, the Holy Spirit, who gives us new heart, who is at work in us to will and to work to his good pleasure, like we see later in the book of Philippians. That that is the God that we worship, the God who pursues us, the God who goes after us. We love because he first loved us. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. That God is not sitting there with his arms folded, waiting for you to impress him. But God is pursuing you, loving you, calling you to himself. That he is at work in you to bring about his purposes in your heart. Have you ever considered that God actually wants your good more than you want your good? God wants to see you grow and deepen as a person more than you ever have. God has greater hope for you than often we have for ourselves, right? That God is excited to see the things that are happening. And so that's, that's the source of our hope. It is not in us in our own achievements, in our I'm going to do better this time, the source of our hope is in God who began a good work in us and he will complete it. And so what does it mean for him to complete it? What does it mean for God to to grow us and to, to develop us as believers? That's when we see the prayer of hope in verses nine through 11. So Paul says, I hold you in my heart, which I think is just such a beautiful picture of prayer. And and what is this prayer that Paul prays for the Philippians? And this is a prayer that shows God's heart for us. This is what he says. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So I want us to kind of Break this down, break this prayer down a little bit. What does it mean for God to be at work in our hearts? He says, this is my prayer that your love may abound. How many of you who have made New Year's resolutions were like, I want to be more loving this year? I'll be honest, that that was not one of my resolutions. It's usually more external things. Like I'd like to lose a few pounds. Or maybe I want to run a 10K. Or maybe I want to read 50 books this year. Whatever, you know. But it's not I want to be more loving. But what's at the core of everything wrong with with us? It's our lack of love. Is that I am not other person focused. I am self focused. I think about myself all the time only, you know. And, And God knows that. Paul knows that. And so Paul's prayer for us is in line with God's will that our love would abound because he knows that's the core of our problem, that we are loveless, that we love the wrong things, that we don't love God and neighbor. It's the root of all of our problems. And so he says, I want your love to abound, not just like for you to be loving, but to abound, to overflow, right? To be overwhelming how much you love. And, and he says, I want you to, your love to abound more and more for all you math science people. 
That's like exponential growth, right? For all you economy people, economists, that's uh, compound interest. For all you humanities people, I don't, I don't really know. There might be like a poem about it somewhere or something like that. Um, but, but God wants your love to abound more and more, to constantly be growing and expanding and increasing. But not just that. He puts something specific on that love. He says, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment. What does he mean by knowledge and discernment when it comes to love? Think about this. Have you ever encountered somebody who hurt so deeply, who had such profound need that you didn't know even where to begin or what to say or what to do? It was like a ball of yarn tangled up and you were just looking for the thread to pull and you just didn't know where to start. Didn't know what to do. He is praying that our love would grow in knowledge to know what to do, right? And think about discernment. Have you ever tried to love someone and been taken advantage of? Tried to serve someone and they exploited you or manipulated you, tricked you, deceived you. Sometimes we give our love to the wrong people. And so he's praying that we would have love with discernment. If we have love with knowledge and we have love with discernment, that's very wise love, right? God wants us to love wisely. He is a wise God and he wants us to be wise as well. And, and what's, the, what's the end result of that? In, in verse 10, he says, so that I want this love to grow in you so that you may approve what is excellent so that you can know who and how and when to love in the way that cares for the most people, cares for people in the best way and gives the most glory to God that that you possibly can to, to approve what is excellent. He wants excellence in your Christian life and not that you would necessarily like make A's on all your in all your classes and do your job perfectly all the time. It's not those kinds of things. He wants excellence in love, not to exclude those things, but excellence in love, that, that you love in an excellent way. That's a cool thing to think about, you know? We never think about, I, well, I never think about the quality of my love. Like, how good am I loving? It's usually, am I loving or not? You know, but how can I even grow in the love that I'm giving to others, in the ways that I'm loving others? And what else? So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. That you would be pleasing to God. That you would be able to stand before him and be, honor, uh, be honoring to him. That he would be pleased with you. Now, when we think about all these things, being loving and being wise about our loving and loving excellently and, and then being pure and blameless. It feels like we're kind of back in New Year's resolution territory, right? It's like, oh man, that's a lot of work. How am I even going to begin to do this? 
How does this happen? And Paul explains at the very end, right, in verse 11. What this is, this in your life, the presence of this in your life, the outworking of this in your heart, he says, is the fruit of righteousness. That is you being filled up with the fruit of righteousness. That is righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. It makes me think of verse 6. He who began a good work in you, in your justification, making you right with God. Because I can't make myself right with God in my own effort. And so God has to do it for me. That I receive his forgiveness. I receive his justification. His making me in right relationship with him by faith through grace. Right? That he, he does that for me and makes me right. But then that's not where it stops. That he continues, what does it say? He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He'll continue to work the fruit of that in your heart in sanctification so that you grow more and more, become more and more made conform to the image of his son. That God is the one doing that. And that we can join with Paul in this prayer for our own lives. As we look at the ugliness that's in our heart, as we feel disappointed that we're struggling with the same sin over and over and over again. That we're just not as loving as we would like to be. That we look back on our lives, we're like, man, I've been a Christian for this long. I feel like I should be so much further down the line than I am. But we can be encouraged when we remember that God is at work in me. He started this work and he will complete this work. So as I feel discouraged, then we can look, not be cynical, but look with hope at this passage in Philippians. That he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. That we'll be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, not our own righteousness. Through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And if you're not a believer and you look at this and you say, well, what does this mean for me? And, and you're wondering like, man, I want this to be true in my heart. Then that could be God beginning the work in your own heart. So lean into that. Talk to somebody about it. Explore that in prayer with God. Call out to him. Know that you can't save yourself. Look to him in faith. He will begin this work. He will complete this work. God does not abandon the projects that he starts because he loves all of us who belong to him. Let's pray together.